0: you're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Um, thank you all very, very much for coming here today. Um, and to begin with, I'm Sean Coughlin. It says Education Correspondent ODI. But in fact, it's BBC. I'm not the Subject of a surprising <laughs> transfer overnight, always available to offers, but, um, but but haven't changed just yet. Um, uh, today we're, we're here to mark the publication of the uh, Global Education Monitoring Report, an annual occasion which I think is one of the great underreported annual events of the year because it's highlighting an injustice of quite epic proportions, really, and it's something we've almost got used to the idea that 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 um, hundreds of millions of people. Don't get the education to which they're entitled. You don't have to go that far on an aeroplane south from here to come across spaces where any education at all is something that, that eludes many families and all the opportunities which come from that. And I think it's very easy to lose sight of, of the significance of that. Um, today's report has a figure of 264 million young people who are missing primary and secondary education. Um, it, it's the long, I mean, it's the latest in a, in a series of depressing s- figures that have come out just in the last few weeks. A few weeks ago, uh, UNICEF uh, came out with a figure showing that there'd been almost no progress. They said zero progress in a decade on trying to get more children into school. Uh, And UNESCO's own stats body, its own institute, said that there were 600 million uh, people in schools of such poor quality, they were learning virtually nothing. And the UN isn't given to to hyperbole, but they describe that as being a staggering figure. And the idea that you could spend uh, so many years in school, if you could get into school and leave without even the basic grasps of literacy and numeracy, I think, is a sort of source of massive uh, collective disappointment. And that sort of brings us on to the theme of this year's report, which is accountability. And where should we put the blame, I suppose, is no other way of thinking about it. If not blame, responsibility, which in in many ways we all share. Uh, No shortage of people you could point to. Is it dodgy governments in countries where they're happy to pay for private jets but don't want to pay for public education? Is it ourselves? Do we do look at our own Western governments who who don't put enough into aid and then quibble about where it goes and and, and the whole narrative of of, of cutting back on aid? And this report also shows I think there have been six successive years in which education has had a decreasing share of of aid budgets. Is it us? Partly, who knows. Um, One thing we can't say is we don't know because this thin, slender tome with its many pages shows in vast detail uh, the the challenge ahead. Uh, And over recent years, um, the work from our colleagues in Paris has shown the scale of, of, of what needs to be done. And also it shows glimmers of progress too. There has been progress. More people can read when this process began and right, and um, it shouldn't be without entire hope. But Will Smith is here with us to give us the the current figure of where we're at and look at this through the lens of this year's theme, um, which is about accountability. Then we're gonna have contributions from two speakers, and you'll notice there isn't a third speaker. The Department for education uh, has pulled out. Um, So we're down to a select but fine group up here. And also our colleague, Uh, From Kenya can't make it either, so we are between ourselves Uh, all here and we'll share what we know. But it's more time for questions, more time for answers, more time for debate. Um, We have Susan Nicolai here from the ODI Home Turf, and we have Mike Treadaway from Education Data Lab who will come at this from a perspective of data, particularly from his experience in the UK. Uh, But to kick us off, we're going to have Will Smith who's going to give us a presentation on this year's report and questions afterwards.
2: Excellent. Uh, Well, thank you, Sean, for the introduction. Uh, As Sean said, I'm Will Smith, the Senior Policy Analyst with UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report, and I'm here today to present our 2017-18 report on accountability and education meeting our commitments. Uh, I want to thank ODI for hosting, as well as contributing to the report, as well as uh, everyone else in the room that's contributed to the report in some way. So, uh, if, as we're going through here, you're interested in contributing to the discussion, please use the hashtag count on me or talk to us at, at GEM report. So we've made some progress in the last 15 years in education, we start thinking back from the be- beginning of the millennium development goals. Uh, we have reduced, liter- reduced literacy, more students in schools, uh, but we still have quite a ways to go. So this report shows we still have 100 million youth that cannot read, one in seven primary teachers are not trained, and Education aid has stagnated, with education and primary and secondary education, or aid primary and secondary education, actually decreasing over the last six years. So accountability <clears throat> is important to education and can help us fix some of these problems. When we looked at this report, we looked at all the different actors that have some responsibility for contributing to the Sustainable Development Goal 4 and we looked at all the different approaches that are currently used to hold these actors accountable. So we're gonna take a little break and show a small uh, video clip detailing these approaches.
3: All countries have committed to achieve equitable quality education by the year 2030. Governments are responsible for achieving this goal, but others have responsibilities too. Schools, teachers, parents and students, international organizations, private sector. Unfortunately, the challenge is large. Millions are not going to school, and many more are leaving school not having learned enough. This year's Global Education Monitoring Report shows how accountability can help. Accountability helps show who is responsible for what, and how problems can be fixed. Governments are held to account by judges, parliamentarians, auditors, ombudsmen, and international organizations. But we all have the power to hold governments to account. The press, elections and protests all play an important role. Schools must provide a safe and supportive learning environment. Governments can regulate, accredit, inspect and monitor them. Parents can exercise control by taking part in school management or by choosing where to educate their child. Teachers teach, but they also do much more. They are guided by ethical codes. Evaluators observe them inspectors scrutinize them. Other teachers and the community also sometimes monitor their work. Parents must ensure students go to school well prepared. In some countries, they can be punished if they do not. Students must not disrupt other students' ability to learn and teachers' ability to teach. International organizations help determine our global goals and member states can question their actions. Donors promise aid. Reporting and scrutiny can expose those falling short of their commitments. The private sector is increasingly influential. Regulations, codes of conduct, transparent contracts, and media scrutiny ensure private actors work for the greater good. Accountability matters. It really matters. But accountability systems don't always work. They can be unaffordable for poorer countries. If badly designed, they penalize the poorest hero teacher motivation, and narrow the curriculum. The GEM report shows what is needed. Reporting to international bodies, auditing the budget, monitoring, and regulating. Transparency is crucial. Clear and accessible information shows who's responsible for what, what is being achieved, and when systems break down. Trust is more effective than penalty. Punishing those who don't achieve strong education results is counterproductive. What we need is to build capacity and to provide resources. We need adequate information about the way education systems are working and for there to be genuine commitment. Let's get accountability right. Pause.
2: There we go. Oh. Uh, okay, well, as you saw from the video, there's quite a diversity of approaches used to hold this collection of actors accountable for their own responsibilities. When we look at accountability over time, we see they increasing emphasis in accountability. And our report shows that this is due to a lot of different factors, uh, including a rapid diversification. So sometimes the successes and expanding enrollment in education as learned has led to diverse provision, uh, which has really challenged states for reg- regulations. We see increased decentralization, uh, increased information leading to rapid calls for more transparency, as well as some uh, challenges in the public sector meeting the needs of society. So for this report, we define accountability as a process <clears throat> to show who's responsible for what and in helping individual actors meet those commitments. So before we get started, there's a few truths that came out of this report. So these essential truths start with the fact that ambitious education outcomes, such as the Sustainable Development Goals, rely on multiple actors fulfilling their shared responsibilities. Essentially, education is a collective effort. So however, while responsibilities can be shared, accountability really cannot. So accountability relies on actors meeting their individual or institutional responsibilities. The challenge is, when creating accountability systems, is making sure we don't create systems where people are held accountable for outcomes beyond their control. So, accountability doesn't work when we have people held accountable for outcomes beyond their control. For instance, teachers cannot be solely accountable for student results because there's multiple factors that go into student test scores. Additionally, accountability needs to be flexible. So, we know that accountability mechanisms may be effective in some countries and in some contexts, and the same mechanisms or approaches may not be effective in others. While there are multiple actors that have responsibilities towards education, education essentially starts with government. (coughs) So the government is the primary duty bearer for ensuring the right to education. And while all countries have signed on to an international commitment or an international treaty uh, ensuring this commitment, only 55% of countries allow citizens to take the government to court for right to education violations. And just over 40% you've actually seen court cases on right to education violations. Civil society and international community needs to do more to try to push to make sure that the right to education is justiciable and the national legal framework. So this brief report is going to focus primarily on recommendations for government. So we know that this is where it starts, and so we'll be talking about recommendations for the design and implementation of a robust government system. What should governments do? So when we're designing a robust accountability system, we first need to start with creating space that will build trust. So inviting multiple stakeholders in. So this helps build trust by creating shared understandings. So however, this is challenging in some places, as globally, we know that 60% of teacher unions were never or rarely consulted on teaching material development at the national level. Additionally, we need to encourage better support for representative uh, representative institutions. For instance, parliamentary committees for reviewing education policy. We know that in the United Kingdom, the Education Parliamentary Committee those recommendations put out by the committee often looked very similar to the final policy recommendations put forth by government. Additionally, the government needs to develop credible education plans with clear lines of responsibility. The education plan is the national commitment and it's the starting point for accountability in the country. And Within these education plans, there needs to be uh, clear budgets that are open to public scrutiny. Additionally, as far as transparency goes, governments need to publish national accountability monitoring reports regularly. But our review of national monitoring reports globally showed that really, since 2010, only one in two countries have published a national monitoring report on on education. And when we look at annual reports, only one in six countries publish an annual education monitoring report. Governments also need to be able to establish clear regulations and standards. (laughs) So, regulations. uh, Regulations need to be not just for public or private, but should cover both sectors. They need to be focused on equity, not just quality. And they need to be transparent and clear. Uh, Unfortunately, not all states or countries have regulations in place for example our review of regulations at the school level showed that in almost half of countries there are no regulation pla- regulations in place on class sizes one example of clear and transparent regulations that have been useful is in Hong Kong which has an online uh, directory of private tutoring centers that meets the regulations uh, that parents can go to to see who qualifies Additionally, accountability systems should be focused on building, not blaming. So, for instance, we've seen a rise in student using student test scores to hold teachers and schools accountable globally, and we know that this has, well, the evidence shows that this has really very little impact on improving learning. So, what this does do is this undermines cooperation within schools. It leads to narrowing of the curriculum, teaching to the test, and shifting students into those Uh, untested groups. (coughs) So, a review of uh, PISA participants that used test-based accountability from 2003 to 2015 showed that of the 11 countries that used test-based accountability, so linking student test scores to school performance, five countries saw some increase in learning, while six saw some decrease in that time. And a similar approach, looking at market-based accountability, where schools are supposed to uh, correct their behavior to try to make sure that they've got parents coming into their school, we see that really the outcome of this is greater segregation across school districts. And while some countries have been able to remedy this by uh, providing vouchers to help make sure the marginalized have access to schools, in other countries, those vouchers have really just been met by increased school fees. Governments also need to allow for democratic voice. This includes by ensuring we have freedom of the press, making sure citizens have uh, formal avenues to voice their complaints, as well as holding free and fair elections. So, media scrutiny can provide information to those who don't, or, sorry, a powerful media can provide information to those who don't typically have access to information. Uh, It can provide be the watchdog for government activity, and it can help make public uh, important research reports. So, autonomous institutions that have authority and listen to government or listen to citizen complaints are also very important. So, ombudsman offices have done a lot to ensure the right to education in places such as Latin America <clears throat> and are key to uh, making sure that citizens' voice are there. Regardless of how well designed an accountability system is, if you haven't, if you don't have the resources, capacity, motivation, and information, it's not going to be very effective in practice. So we need to think about how we are implementing accountability systems from the government as well. So first, the government needs to be, be transparent. They need to provide relevant and timely information. And this includes investing in information that actually provides feedback on how to build a stronger system. (coughs) <coughs> so this information uh needs to make sure that we're being judicious with it. So oftentimes there's information overload with our actors. So the information needs to be designed with a purpose in place as well. Um and be useful to those that the information is provided to. For instance, in Kenya, we know that 72% of parents, once they were provided with student literacy data, didn't know what to do with that. And as far as overburdening Uh, individuals with data. We know that 56% of teachers in England so that they have so much data that it seems to detract them from their real work. Governments also need to be committed. They need to be committed to fund education. So they should spend at least 6% of their GDP on education or allocate 15% of their total government expenditure on education. (coughs) However, our report identifies that one in four countries are missing missing hitting these benchmarks. So it can't just be the national governments that are funding education. Donors have a role to play too. So in their aid programs, donors should allocate 0.7% of income to aid, with at least 10% of that going to primary and secondary education. However, as I mentioned earlier, the share of aid to education has fallen for six years in a row, um, and is now sitting at under, under 7% relative to the 10% expected. We also need to be careful of results-based financing. So this is an increased, increasingly used form of financing, uh, similar to test-based or performance-based accountability. This is trying to promote performance by sanctioning or rewarding uh, the government, in this instance, for their outcomes. All right, when we look at results-based financing, we see that results-based financing <laughs> actually tends to decrease intrinsic <laughs> motivation of those providers and undermines country ownership. Finally, governments need to be supportive in building capacity. They need to set up strong institutions, such as judiciary, the police, and auditors to detect and deter corruption in education. <coughs> so corruption is a real issue in education. Uh, for instance, globally there's a sense that construction is one of the more corrupt sectors. However, when we look at in the European Union, the risk of corruption for the education sector is actually greater than the risk of corruption for the construction sector, we also need to train teachers and school evaluators. So, oftentimes, inspections tend to focus more on material things instead of looking at what's best for learning. Uh, and finally, there needs to be greater investment within the countries to make sure that they're representative of international organizations. As we mentioned earlier, there are multiple actors responsible for meeting these shared aims of education, that includes international organizations such as ourselves and the governments have a lot to do with holding institutions like UNESCO to account. So accountability is often put forward as one of the solutions to the challenges we have in education. And at the GEM report, we welcome that since initially the GEM report is an accountability tool. We also welcome it because we understand that without accountability, uh, people often pull back and and it leads to complacency. However. Implementing accountability uh, is a challenging task, and we suggest some caution, especially when we're talking about implementing it attached to uh, narrow performance measures. So, I hope you can work with us, to help us get accountability right, uh, and we're looking forward to the rest of the conversation. So, thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much, Will. Lots and lots of big themes there. Um, Just to begin with, I think we'll get some responses from our two panelists. Starting off with Susan, uh, (coughs) Senior Research Fellow at the ODI. What what do you make of that? What what are your initial reactions to this year's report?
4: Um, First of all, uh, I'm pleased to be hosting this year and so thanks for for will for coming and the other panelists um and uh it's it's been really interesting ODI worked with the um the report team um in thinking through the recommendations and how to frame that uh the the research and the findings that they had put together and that process really threw up an, a number of tensions which I'll I'll remark on in a bit but I think um the from the the overall um, sense that we get from the report is how central accountability um, is to actually delivering on some of the big uh, big challenges that we've got from from SDG four, um, but how complex it is. As well, and there are all of these different angles that you really need to be looking at and thinking about in terms of accountability. It is a government role, but there's lots of other actors that need to be involved to make accountability work right. And there's the different levels of accountability as well around uh, so formal laws and regulations, but you've also got. Um, the intrinsic motivations and the extrinsic motivations and um, a lot of dynamics that are going on there. And uh, that looks very different in every context. So I think my big takeaway is the complexity. And I guess I I would... um, Uh, you know, congratulate the team for really trying to tackle some of the complexity in this report. But there's uh, a lot of questions and a lot of challenges as one actually looks at implementing and um, addressing accountability in different education systems. Mm. Okay. Mike,
1: wearing your data
5: hat, (laughs) what's your headline take? What the breaking news on this? How would you frame um, it? Maybe I'll start with one thing, because I mean, yeah, my background is working within the UK context, data within school improvement and accountability as part of that. Um, when I, sk- I have to be honest, I skimmed the big report last night. <laughs> I certainly didn't read all of it. But there was one headline on page 293 that I thought should be like imprinted on every page, which said, accountability is part of a solution, but should be designed with humility and I can remember in the early days when we set up the Fisher Family Trust data analysis project one of the slides on the first thing we ever did back in 2000 was data doesn't provide answers it just provides questions you need to use it along with other things to get to answers Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a thread that needs remembering right through that as you've referenced a number of times Will about the use of data within accountability. Um, If I sort of Pick up one example for now, maybe illustrate a few later. But I was reflecting on your comment about teacher perceptions in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think probably the perception is they have the, the extra workload to collect data that they have to do is a problem. And I'm, I've often thought if I was in their position now, I might think the same. Because it seems to me a lot of teachers have to do a lot of work to collect data, but what do they get back? Mm-hmm. They often just get back targets. They don't get stuff that's diagnostic. They don't get stuff back that's actually going to inform teaching and planning. And yet, ironically, if you look at the you know, government's teacher standards document, there are actually 20 statements in there about use of data within teaching. One of them refers to pupil performance. The other 19 are about using data to, in, to inform teaching and planning. Mm-hmm. So I have a suspicion that if teachers got more back, they might regard it as less of a problem.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have a few questions up here first, and then we'll open up to, to yourselves. Um, and, and we'll, I'll ask the, the panelists as, as well as Will. One thing that struck me during that was that we're looking, from, we're looking at other countries and saying, here are some ground rules for how accountability might work. These are the conditions in which you might grow. But c- can I ask Will, first of all, can you do it from outside? Every country has its own education system. You think in the context of the UK, there are four different sets of accountability systems, you know, Ofsted uh, and, and, and different systems in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Can you impose, can you export, can you offer someone else something, or does it have to come from within? Uh, because one of the most striking things I often think about these, I mean, you mentioned PISA data on that, that, that countries that have done particularly well come from nowhere places like vietnam and and south korea are conspicuous by doing it for themselves and in their own way and and in a way that's very much to do with their own history and and culture can can you do it from outside or is it something that has to happen spontaneously and organically
2: yeah i think um as i mentioned one of the keys to the report is talking about how accountability is as susan talked about very complex and so you have different approaches that may work in different contexts. and so just because something works in one country doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in another country. So there does need to be a lot of, of caution with trying to implement accountability systems across national lines because of the unique context <coughs> of the country. Um, I think when we look at uh, when we look at the role of donors, even the role of communities, uh, we talk about some concerns with with uh, perhaps parents or community members that are invested at some point in their children's education but may not be invested to others, or donors that are really invested in a limited time, Um, but once that money dries up, what happens? So we we start talking about, well, what what is really sustainable in accountability systems? And oftentimes, implementing accountability from the outside isn't a sustainable practice, so it does need to be something implemented with the government, uh, ingrained to make sure the government's meeting their own commitments. And so there there have been successful Practices and social accountability, um, <coughs> where it was a, a local community that was helping uh, government inspectors actually collect. So it was using the systems there, and really intertwining the community with something that was already in place, so that once the community moved away, um, that there was a, a strength and capacity of yeah. the government. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the keys. Um, what do
4: you think, Susan? When we were working uh, with the report on thinking through recommendations, and and as I was reflecting um, in preparation for today as well, one of the things um, I was trying to think back on is, OK, how does one describe the role of a p- accountability? What, what does it make a difference on in terms of an education system? And was looking back at some um, research and analysis that we did across sets of education systems, where we were trying to look at what are the drivers for really increased access or improving quality and um, looking at the the links between um, things like politicians prioritizing visible change and the the kind of data elements that link to access really successfully often. uh when, when parents, when communities see the, those changes in access, that can be a, a really um, positive feedback loop. Where, and, and that's a very visible change, whereas um, things like improvements in quality... Um, are not as visible and particularly for for communities that don't have a, a history or culture of engaging in, in schools in, um, in certain ways and so how does one make those um, elements of education that are perhaps less visible um, visible and part of a feedback loop and I, I think the the thing that um, is quite, interesting in reflecting back at those those sets of case studies. And we looked across countries like um, Ethiopia, Cambodia, um, Indonesia, Chile, um, Kenya, uh, to try to, to understand a, a little bit about the dynamics behind this. Um, I think what was really interesting to see is what happened when um, there was a there was specific effort to engage um, beyond uh, government actors, beyond central government actors, and so I think while governments hold formal accountability and regulation systems are are set up at that level. Um, there really needs to be a, a careful look at how the incentives and the, the, the politics of the system feed back and, um, and support change and support politicians who are advocating for change. And so an example of um, one place where there's been some really interesting experiments with that it, and attempts to create better feedback loops would be in Chile. And there's lots of challenges with the the system in Chile and the the stratification um, in terms of the education system would be front and center as a concern. But there's been some really interesting experiments that they've done with um, both national level um, testing in in the form in a a test called SIMSE. That provides some some interesting feedback loops that help local governments um, decide on resource allocation, on focusing on capacity building and and where they need to be putting their resources, um, and some effort uh, and some engagement in um, international testing systems like TIMS and uh, PISA um, to help gauge where the the country is going. And I think the engagement. at a decentralized level um, with those testing systems it's is one of the things that's made a difference to improved quality as a whole in the country. Um, another example uh, where there's been lots of efforts of engagement, and I'm sure many of you in the room are, are aware of um, efforts like Acer in India and Taweza in uh, Kenya and... Um, and uh, Tanzania and the efforts to really engage, it, share information about um, levels of, of quality um, at school level and try to engage citizens in that, um, in, in improving the quality. Um, and I think that's an example of, of where engagement um, can lead to some improvements, but it has real challenges. And I think it was mentioned, um, you know, how do, do people know what to do with the information is is a big challenge in terms of um, accountability as well. So um, just reflecting on mm-hmm. some of those mm-hmm. experiences.
1: Okay, uh, and Mike, again, we turn to you as, as our stats man down there. The, 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 <laughs> how, how, how do you think, we, we, we had lots of uh, figures being quoted at us there in the presentation, What are the the, the sort of strengths of data in this? What can it bring? And also what are the risks? It's a, a thing we can get too bogged down in, in numbers and whatever. How does it work?
5: OK, um, I'll, I, I might challenge <laughs> being described as a stats man, though. Because my, 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 my background is is teaching and local advisory stuff and learning enough statistics to do the stuff, not not the other way around. <laughs> so I often ask questions that real statisticians don't ask, which turn out to be quite important ones sometimes. <laughs> OK. Um, uh, Perhaps a key perspective about this, like transportability stuff across, is you know, too often people are trying to centralize systems rather than trying to understand what those systems are doing in a particular context and then transport the understanding of what it does and develop systems. I, and I often like to illustrate things with real cases, and this is just a very simple illustration, but it, it illustrates the sort of perspective I think too many schools get in in terms of what are we expected to do rather than how can we become confident in what we're doing so that when we're inspected, we'll be okay? Um, and this goes back to the sort of mid-90s when in primary schools in the UK, sort of checklists that you would record about pupils seemed to grow like a disease. I don't know if you remember, there was a time when on the news there was going to be a shortage of baked beans, so everybody rushed into the supermarket and they suddenly sold out of baked beans. Well, the same thing happened with checklists. Teachers would go off... Um, maybe on professional development courses, and they'd come back and say, we need to add these things to our checklist because this school down the road has got them on our checklist. And these things grew and grew. And I was asked by a primary school I was working, because I was in a local authority context at the time, just to go and review their systems for assessment. And I spent a day in there. And I can remember at the session at the end, it was quite a big primary school, and I said to them, why are you recording all this stuff in the checklist? Uh, because the feedback I had from individual teachers was there was way too much information. They didn't use that. All they, what they mainly used were, were a small number of comments about individual pupils that the t- previous teacher had recorded and used that to inform what they were thinking about the new class. And I think I can't remember if it was the head or the assessment coordinator said, but isn't this what we're inspe- expected to do? <laughs> And I pointed out to them that yeah, the criteria for inspection said schools should be using assessment to inform teaching and improve. It doesn't specify how you do it. And I think that to me is a real illustration of the sort of issue we often get into about portability, if you like, of you know accountability and so on. That mm. it's about you, as long as you've got the system in place, it's OK, rather than do we really understand what the benefits are of that. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think. Data has been, if you look over the last 20 years, which is sort of my involvement of data in UK education, it's been a real mixed bag. There have been some real positives. Um, and, you know, I can think of schools where they've been able to who were often struggling quite a lot But maybe use some very sort of forensic diagnostic data to be able to say Yeah, we're struggling with lots of areas, but there may be 10% of areas where we're actually doing reasonably well So let's learn internally from those 10% and build up from that and those and schools in those situations have gone often gone on leaps and bounds um, on the other hand too often data is used in a very sort of deterministic way. Um, back to that point about humility. You know, if one bit of data does something, test it against another bit of data. Test it against some other things that you know. I mean, if two bits of data plus common sense all tell you the same thing, it's a pretty strong indication that you should get on and do it. If they tell you different things, you need to <coughs> delve further. It's the data asked in side. So I think there are, there are broad learning things like that that we can use to port data across. But equally, we need to maybe learn from some of the mistakes. Um, I, was, I was looking through uh, Kate's email beforehand talked about sort of some of the questions we might come across. And one of it is, you know, obviously, in the UK, there's a very detailed collection of data, both in terms of proof of performance and characteristics in school census, things like that. And you know, what about countries that couldn't possibly afford to do things like that? And, after my first reaction was a bit like Yoda in Star Wars it was sort of well actually most of the intermediate things are more dangerous than there were so it's either do or not do there is no try so do it properly or don't bother doing it at all Um, but there are but I think there are maybe lessons we can learn from the UK to pass on perhaps about because sometimes it's it's Professional development seems to be often to focus on what to do, and we should focus on what not to do. I and mean, your report is actually very balanced, I think, on that, Will. And it's, it's, it's just as a more important to identify what not to do as it is what to do. So, you, um, <coughs> crude approaches years ago in the UK, we've dropped it now. We used to use things like benchmarks to evaluate schools, and it was it's, we've got a loss of lessons from that that it's blindingly obvious that that doesn't actually work very accurately. And yet, if all you've got is whole school data then you're often tempted to go into those sorts of approaches and I think there are things maybe detailed examples like that that say this is where you can how what's what's the limits of data I mean I suppose if I'm summarizing broadly over the last 20 years in the UK we've had a vast increase in availability of data we've had no increase in data literacy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that for me is actually quite a dangerous situation um, we need to build capacity, um, your report references it, and I think what we haven't done in the UK enough is train people in being properly data literate. We, need, we, should, be, we should do that along with making the data available.
1: bring Will back in again. The, one of the slides that, that came up there showed um, a, a call for greater transparency, and you talked about the need for democratic voice and the need to, to, um, to in a way, to use that to challenge inequality. It occurs to me that many of the countries I think you're speaking about are deeply unequal and by their nature not very open. How do you persuade countries to open up? Because the sort of thing you're offering and proposing isn't value free. You're, you're effectively proposing democratic values in countries that aren't very democratic and ideas of equal access in schools which are in countries which are inherently unequal. How, how, do you, how, do you get, how do you get in with the education uh, when it, you're so much against what the local politics are?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenging question, right? And so, the, it actually goes back to your first one, like, are we promoting external values onto countries that may not be interested in, in hearing about mm. this? Um, so there's, there's a lot, um, I, I guess this goes back to also, you know, there, there's, we all have a role to play. So the government may be quite restrictive in opening up and creating kind of these more formal channels. Um, we, we obviously encourage it but there are other avenues for citizens to take part and so uh you know for instance putting public pressure as susan talked about some of the acer uh kind of more community-based assessments that have been able to use the media to put public pressure uh on things we also know that um you know the there's been some success in uh in civil society taking uh the government to court as long as you know, because the, the leadership in the government may change, but if you've got a justiciable right to education, there are some avenues there. So it may not just be, the policymakers may not be interested in expanding, but you may be able to work through the court system. So for example, in Brazil, they're able to uh, take the government to court in, in Sao Paulo and uh, ensure that kind of primary and, and early childhood education was available uh, there. The other avenues, I mean, there, there are some avenues that aren't really well expanded, and we try to, to highlight some of those in the report. Um, there are avenues for citizens to take, uh, basically go straight to an international treaty body or to provide, work with a civil society organization to provide a parallel report uh, to a treaty body. So it's it's more challenging when you obviously you don't have the government. I mean, we just talked rec- recommendations on all the government should do, and if the government came back and said, well, we're not doing any of this, that, that's quite a challenge. But there is still some hope. Um, it, it takes some flexibility, it takes perseverance, and it takes understanding the options out there. And so hopefully our report is able to highlight some of those additional mm. options.
1: And I suppose that the, in terms of the context of this morning's report, that the framework that's held by the international community to, to try and uh, maintain accountability are the sustainable development goals. Do you think they're very successful at doing that? Are they, are they, are they the right <coughs> goals? Are they engaging with the public? Do they have the same sort of traction that possibly that their predecessors, the Millennium Development Goals had?
2: Well, I, I think we're, we're still fairly early in the Sustainable Development Goals. I think it takes a long time for the public to really understand and embrace, and a lot of that is kind of uh, our role as an in international community to, to make sure that it's you know clearly communicated what the goals are and what the targets are, what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do this. Um, so I, I, at this point, I think two years in, it's it's not quite an accurate comparison. I think the Millennium Development Goals had a lot of momentum, partially because they were a smaller, more concrete piece. Uh, when we think about the education targets and the <laughs> Millennium Development Goals, they were fairly simple to communicate. Uh, we're talking about primary education enrollment, and we're talking about gender parity, and those those are pretty easy to communicate to people. Um, partially because you know a lot of Uh, The way we communicate with people is we ask them to reflect on their own experiences, and people understand that, okay, I went to primary school, and everybody should have the ability to go to primary school. And yes, boys and girls should be treated equally and have equal access to things. And when we think about some of the challenges in the Sustainable Development Goals, obviously we've got a a lot more complexity when we think about the global and thematic indicators on the education side. There's 43 of them, which is is quite an array. A lot of goals. (laughs) Yeah, quite an array, uh, quite challenging to track for us. and when we think about something like uh, SDG 4.7, we start talking about education for sustainable development or global citizenship. Those are things that aren't well-defined yet, and they're things that haven't been a part of most of our traditional education. So when we talk to people about this, they start thinking about, well, what is this, and how how does this really play a part? It didn't play a part in my education. And, you know, I know it didn't play a part in my mom's education, so what does this look like? Um, and so some of this is a little more challenging, hopefully with good communication, um, we, we are still doing our best to try to clarify and simplify some of these into messages that are easy to communicate with the public. Um, so hopefully down the road, this momentum continues to build. Mm. Um, but at this point, the, the breadth of the SDGs and some of the complexity of the messages, um, I think we have, have a ways to go. There's yes, definitely yes. great advantages to the SDGs, because I think we're covering a wider range of what education really is. Uh, but at the same time, you know, from a communications perspective, it's really nice to have these concrete, simple messages that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. I, I, can I ask uh, our other panelists as well? Do you, do you think that accountability
1: is, is, a, is a nice way of saying responsibility or blame? Do you, do you think we're a little bit sometimes unwilling to point the finger or, in, in these debates or, or to actually are we slightly dishonest about it? Do we actually say this should be sorted out and these people are not living up to their responsibilities?
4: Yeah, I think sometimes it, it is, um, and that links very much to the kind of legislation, regulation side of accountability, so the real formal accountability, and that's definitely a piece of the puzzle, but I think one of the the, the things that I thought was nice about the report is that it went beyond um, just looking at that that formal kind of accountability and also really emphasized um, the fact that there are the, these different pieces of implementing an effective accountability system, and, and in the set of recommendations, there is there's really a triad of elements that they highlight. One is about um, information, which we've talked quite a bit about already in terms of, of data. Um, but there's lots of elements to to that information that um, that uh, can that are important around being effective, you know, all the way from availability to literacy to um, to the use uh, of the information. Um, the second uh, piece of that triad of an accountability system that was emphasized is around resources, and um, when one looks at the fact that uh, that um, only one quarter of country governments are putting their domestic resources at the levels that that have been benchmarked globally for education, there's definitely a lack of resources there from the domestic side, and we have that mirrored um, from the global level in terms of aid to education as well, um, where I I think, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's um, we've talked about the the aid issue already as well, and then the third um, piece of the triad that they've emphasized is around capacity and the capacity to engage and um, and uh, deliver accountability systems is a key piece of the puzzle as well. So I think if you just have that the one element and the formal element of regulation. Um, Absolutely. An emphasis on that then does become about finger pointing and blame. But if those other elements of an accountability system are there, then there's much more potential to have it uh, actually be transformative.
1: Okay. One last question for me before we open it up to the, to the, uh, to the audience. Um, wh- one of the most hotly contested debates in this area is about the role of private education, private players, Have you... Choose to, to, to frame that, um, and there was a slide there mentioning about that in a rather neutral way. Um, and of course, you can see you could see this from the perspective of this being a sort of market failure. There should be more people from the private sector involved. Conversely, you could see that as being the worst possible thing to have the private sector in because that <coughs> prices people out and crowds out the public sector. I know there are lots of very, very strongly held uh, views on this. So I wonder what you what you think about the, the relationship between this issue about access to education and the private sector.
4: Um, that was one of the most hotly contested pieces um, when we were talking to uh, a variety of actors about the draft recommendations about what should this report be saying about that. And um, there certainly had people on the side of the debate that were saying, uh, you know there, the role of accountability with private, Private providers is really about creation of an enabling framework and a space for for more engagement versus others who who were really saying um, it needs to be about being restrictive. It needs to be about um, making sure that uh, the focus is on the right to a free quality education. And if private providers aren't playing a role in that, are are limiting that right, then. Um, then their engagement needs to be really really cur- curtailed. So I don't know that um, I, I think that this is such a live debate and I'm actually really interested to hear from folks in the audience. I fee- see a few of you who are very engaged in that at the moment and how um, your thoughts about h- accountability frameworks um, play out there And I, I think we're you know there's no clear answers and um, it's uh, as live of a debate. Um, In a place like the UK, um, as it is in a place like Kenya or India. Mm. What do
5: you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, obviously, UK countries, I think, is very different. You quoted Chile earlier, where there's (laughs) two very, very different. Once in that context. Um, if I just pull out one thought on it, I think, which is about essentially the stuff that's been in the news recently about um, university entrance, and particularly in terms of uh, pupils from ethnic, minority ethnic groups to Oxbridge and so on. Um, one figure that isn't often quite is there, there are quite a number of parents that switch their students from public to private education for sixth form. Uh, and I guess that's because they think they have more chance of getting them into more what they might term elite universities and so on. I mean, analysis of data seems to suggest that maybe, you know, the fact that a lot more children from private schools get into, or public schools as they're called in the UK, which uh, is confusing, I you know, um, get into Oxbridge, for example, half of that is is broadly that they tend to have higher level attainment for for the same attainment at GCSE. Um, Those in in public schools tend to have slightly higher level attainment. Half of it is that, but half of it is we think more down to the fact that public schools have had that relationship with Oxford, so they're better at helping their students to cope with the interview process and so on and so forth. So there there are some quite complex things that when you actually start to dig underneath what the Differences might be. Mm. But would you allow me for a more I was hoping to just come back in on your question about, should you point the finger? Because, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I've often thought, I mean, whether, when I was teaching, when I was running an advisory system, I was just thinking, in, in the end, what's the important thing here? The important thing here is, are the children we're working with making appropriate progress and achieving the things we want them to achieve? And if you have to point the finger somewhere to achieve that, then you should do that. But the key bit is the, the context and how that's done. Mm. Um, So, again, I quite like illustrating with examples, and and I think it illustrates also the need to be a little more sophisticated about, at least the dangers of crude use of data. Mm. Um, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember, but back in 2003, David Blonkett was Secretary of State for Education in the UK, and... um, there was a rule that said, if schools were below the floor target three years on the run, they will be closed, and there was absolutely no that was it there was nothing else was going to happen and i I got asked to go and do an analysis for DFE to look at value added for schools like that uh, because at that point DFE didn't have contextual value added we did in the FFT stuff because we were independent of government, so we could do what we liked. And that analysis actually showed that of schools below that floor target, there were about 20% of them, but they were actually in the top quartile for pupil progress. They just had a very low attaining intake. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that was in the April, May. That summer, uh, well, in June, it was David Miliband that particularly picked up on this. In, David Miliband invited 300 schools with the best value added together to show what they've been doing. Five of those schools were schools that would have been closed under that whole target thing, mm-hmm. and over the summer. The legislation was changed it now became if they're below the floor target well some might be close oh we might with some in this way we might with some in this way and some of those schools have gone on to improve at a very fast rate or not, because they got some feedback they say, actually you're not horrendous mm. <laughs> you you can improve mm, but you you're yeah. already doing well in some areas so i think for me pointing the finger is fine and saying look there appears to be an issue here it's what you follow it with mm. it's whether you follow it with a I'm just going to look at the data and say you should be closed, or whether it's, I'm going to look at the data, work with you in a diagnostic way, if that proves to be problematic, then we might still close you, mm-hmm. but it might, in most cases, 80%, it leads to real improvement. Okay. So, okay. I've yeah. no problem with pointing the finger, it's the uh, context and how it's done that matters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, back to the,
1: the private, uh, mm-hmm. private players, what do you think?
2: Um, well, this is, as Susan talked about, quite a contentious issue, and we've had internal conversation, but haven't quite decided where exactly we, we fit on this. But when we look at, um, I, so I, I think when we think about private education, we think about, does it help the most marginalized? And does it align with kind of the, the national commitments and goals of the country? So I think that's typically where we start. And most of the research, when we think about um, markets and private education, shifting education towards a, really a private good, and we think about the initial creation of UNESCO in our report as looking at uh, education from a rights-based public good perspective, we see some conflict there. And then we think about, okay well private good means basically that individuals are paying for their education and regardless of how low fee that is, we know that that, that leaves out somebody. And so that's that's when we start getting a little concerned. Um, so in, in this report when we talk about private provision of education, we really go back to regulations. And uh, as I mentioned before, one of the things on accountability has been this m- rapid expansion of enrollment and access, which is wonderful, but that often outpaces really the government's ability to provide uh, quality education for these individuals. And that's led to some concerns on the quality of public schooling mm-hmm. and kind of this mushrooming of other different types of schooling, whether it's NGOs or pri- you know, pu- for-profit, private or community-based uh, schools that the challenge with that and the thing we try to highlight here is as expansion is is happening we need the, the government needs to not just have the capacity to inspect but they need to make sure there are proper regulations in place because oftentimes uh these schools that are potentially popping up in some areas need different regulations so they're not the typical you know what we think of like is a high performing high fee private school um, and so they need different regulations but they need regulations and so Uh, for instance, in Lagos, Nigeria, we know that even though they had regulations, um, only 26% of private schools were basically meeting regulations and being approved by the government. We know once regulations happen in Kenya, uh, some low fee private schools there were, or are being, uh, closed down by the government and that was supported by the courts in, in Kenya and Uganda. And so really, I, I think it goes back to, are they aligning with, the aims. I think if we have <coughs> private provision, it still needs to be moving towards what the country has decided is what's best for them. Mm. Um, and are we leaving people behind? And so I, I think we still have a lot to do to search in and, and, and look through private uh, provision and education. But I think we start with those two questions mm. and then okay. evaluate from there.
1: Okay. And, and we say we might get some thoughts from the audience.
2: Should we open it up to uh, to... To
1: your good selves. Any, any questions for the panel, or any thoughts, comments on what we've heard this morning? Where should we go? Uh, start there and work around that. Get st- there's a woman there that we start over. They go over here and go back there.
0: Hi. Um, thank yeah. you very much um, for, to the panel for, for the um, presentations this morning and the discussion. Um, I was wondering if I could ask about um, national-level NGOs and civil society organisations. Um, because these are a very important independent voice um, in, in identifying inequalities um, and, and in holding governments to account. And um, some of the, the points made in the panel do refer to these, but I noticed that they weren't in the diagram at the beginning or in the video. Mm. Um, so I wanted to ask whether there was a, a reason for that, and also if is there a sense that the role of civil society has changed in, in holding you governments do. to Should account? can
1: you put that to Will directly first, because it was his, his slideshow? Yeah.
2: Sure. Um, okay, so... Uh, civil society, obviously, has an important role to play. One of the reasons that you didn't see them in the, the animation there um, was partially because we, we ran out of space to talk about all the different actors. Uh, but the, the, way this, the way the report is constructed <coughs> is um, each chapter asks really three questions, right? So instead of asking parents, how are, are parents holding governments accountable? We're asking, what is the parent's responsibility in the parents and students chapter? How are they held accountable and then what do they need to meet their responsibilities so instead of everything uh every chapter pointing at what they can do to hold government accountable it's really looking at how are parents held accountable how are teachers held accountable how are schools held accountable and that's a very different approach to most uh most research and reports on accountability uh civil society you, you'll see a lot of them and their important role to play in the government chapter because they have a really important way, especially through media to hold the government to account and so uh, for instance we know in what uh, in, in the Philippines uh, we know that volunteers helped through civil society uh, looked at monitoring I think 7,000 textbook delivery points which ended up uh, reducing cost by two-thirds procurement, uh, and procurement time in half and so in addition going through media uh, is important uh, galvanizing uh, public interest so in Brazil over three million people took part in public consultations for their education plan. Uh, a lot of that was supported by civil society, so they, they have an important role to play um, in really galvanizing public support, identifying corruption, um, and helping. Um, yeah, I guess help, helping build capacity in governments.
1: Mm, okay, I think a question here from colleague in Green.
3: Actually, oh. Is that on? Yeah. It was exactly the same question because I mean I did some research with UNESCO in 2015 and the role of civil society and some and I guess a lot of people in this room are from civil society organisations and from national and international coalitions. So it's civil that was the, the same question. Also, my other part of the question was about rights and human rights, and I know that I think you said Will that in 55. Uh, of cases, then you can hold a government accountable legally. But I wonder if you could say a bit more about kind of human rights frameworks and how they can be used at different levels, and also to support parents to understand more about the rights to education. Okay,
1: George, you want to very quickly say that one, I've got a particular question. Sure,
2: sure. A human rights thing. Yeah, uh, and so when we think about human rights, the the report starts with the right to education, and starts the government chapter with. The government being the primary duty bearer for the right to education, we um, we have somebody from the right to education initiative in the room, so I'll let her uh, expand on this a little bit if she is up to it. But really, uh, when you talk about it, we're, there's multiple ways to get the right. Right. So you start with an international commitment, uh, and so we talk about legally binding international commitments on the right to education, and that's the hundred percent that have. that have ratified at least a treaty that has to do with the right to education. it may not be a full commitment, but it's at least education freedom in their country. Um, And then we talk about just disability, and so Tanzania is an interesting example of this, where, uh, and I've just learned this really over the last couple years. uh, Before I was here, I was working on the Right to Education Index. So, um, in Tanzania, you look at their constitution, and it says, okay, here's the right to education. It's easy to pick out. And then right around that you say, well, this is not a justiciable right. And it, it just kind of blew my mind. Uh, and so part of that is just transitioning, saying, okay, well, we need to have something that uh, is a protected right that citizens can't act on. Um, and so that's part of why we have 100 percent that have uh, committed it. We have, I think, over 80 percent that um, have it in their, their constitution. But from that 80, you know, there's, there's this huge gap still with people that have it in the constitution but actually can't take them to court. Okay. So that's the base piece. Uh, but there are other ways to, to, to look at this through, um, through providing action. We talk about parallel reporting. So, CSOs, another way that uh, civil society can take part is by providing parallel or shadow reports to, um, to international treaty bodies, why the country is going reviewed. Um, there are citizen complaint mechanisms to, for instance, the UNESCO. Uh, Convention Against Discrimination in Education where citizens or communities can actually go directly to UNESCO and talk about violations there as well Um, and I know that other uh, NGOs and CSOs are are trying to provide information uh, campaigns to really bring that to the community level so there's there's lots to it but I'll I'll let uh, some others in the room
1: We're also, as well as being in the room we're we're online as well and and hello to our virtual audience up there Uh, and there's any questions on this uh, thing here so there's a question here which I'll we'll ask the panel, which is from Joalyn Patel. Um, and th- the question is really, um, how do you measure things which are harder to measure? Uh, if you have an accountability framework, what does that do for things like people learning to live together and competent- competencies like empathy? How do you measure empathy? Susan, how do you have a sort of score chart for empathizing?
4: Um, yeah, I think uh, I think there's um, to kind of take that from um, a global perspective and, and some of the ambition of SDG four, which includes um, elements around uh, you know education for peace, learning to live together, education for development, and um, and other efforts around um, frameworks uh, like this. I think that that is, a, it's a perennial question of, of how does one um, measure those elements so that, that they, uh, so investment and emphasis um, can happen on them. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear more from Mike. I don't—I—I mm. I think it's it's such a live question, yeah. um, you know, from a data perspective, what um, what have you seen done here in the UK?
1: Can you measure those things which are yeah, very important, yeah. but not necessarily
5: pieces to Yeah, with. I'd certainly agree with a view that says just because it's hard to measure doesn't mean we should give up and only measure things that are easily measured. And mm. um, right, there, there's some quite important research over the last two or three years in the UK showing about the impact of schools that are doing things with building resilience and work with mindfulness and areas like that. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of one, one primary school up in the um, northeast of England, in, in, in Stockton. Um, the head there talked about... I was at a conference and she talked about a student who just left her to go to secondary school, and she said, I think she'd be the first one that survives in secondary school. And what she meant by that was the previous two in the family had lasted two years and one year before they'd been excluded. And she said, this, we think this, she, she will be OK because we've done a lot of work in helping our students be pre- emotionally prepared for transfer to secondary school. Mm-hmm. Now, measuring that is quite tricky. But it's actually really quite important. Uh, I think things can be done maybe at a more, when I say a local level, a school level, things like that. Um, I was interested when you mentioned about Chile, that that initiatives were happening in sort of almost small scale locally and building up in some ways, the impression I got with some of the things you mentioned. Um, I'm thinking of a school up in um, Sheffield where um, they identified. It's essentially things to do with um, mental health issues is mm. important. Um, now, it's hard to measure that. Yeah. Um, but ref- referring through the local authority was taking a long time. So they made a decision that rather than spending money on some other things, they'd spend some money on having a permanent psychiatrist employed in the school that worked in their school and in their primary schools, and they got pupils' support and referred to much quicker they turn out the reason I identified that school I was doing one of the research things I do is looking at trying to find schools who are doing very well with pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds and they had they were probably they'd been the fastest improving and were doing best in terms of progress of disadvantaged students that was one of the things they put down to that so I think it is it is difficult to measure Um, another school example is one where Um, I was looking at, schools in the UK have to report on um, century performance with disadvantaged pupils. It's a big government target, reducing the gap between disadvantaged pupils and others. There's extra funding for that. And schools have to report on that. It's quite salary to look at school websites and see how they are reporting. Um, I looked at a sample of schools where the gap is still very wide and not closing, in fact, getting even wider. And generally there's one page that says this is what we've done and there's nothing where they talk about evidence of impact. Yeah. Uh, schools in the middle have a little bit about impact. Almost all of the schools that have had a big impact where that performance of disadvantaged pupils has been improving rapidly, the, what the report on their website is only maybe about 20% of the report is about what they did and 80% is about impact. Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting ones said They'd looked at performance of disadvantaged pupils in terms of the progress they were making. They also looked at the gap in pupil attitude surveys. And that was a school that was going into real depth and using that data diagnostically. And surprise, surprise, again, they were one of the fastest improvement of those sort of students. So, so I think there is a lot of merit to doing it. It's probably quite a hard thing to think of how you do it at a sort of national level and it defining does, it. the it. very heart of accountability, doesn't yeah, it? Because but men, but what, you,
1: what you choose to yeah, measure is but, it's a decision in itself, mm, isn't it?
5: The, again, yeah. maybe, you know, I sometimes wonder why the same accountability method and measurement has to be used in every context. We, we've said it doesn't apply across countries. Why does it apply within countries? Schools are in different situations, and w- the sort of methodology and data analysis that needs to be used for accountability maybe should vary according to their context.
1: Mm, OK. <laughs> well, that thought for a second. There were some questions over this side of the room, which I haven't had a chance to. There was, there was a man right at the back who was very early on. Could you also say... Um, your name perhaps, and what brings you here as well, you, who you might represent if you were from an organisation.
6: All right, I'm Abdul-M Fatoma from Campaign for Human Rights and Development International. Um, we operate in Cerulean, and which happens to be my um, home country, and uh, we're talking about accountability. Um, it is a huge challenge for our civil society organisation operating in Leone raising issues um, ranging from accountability you know, like one of the panelists was saying, you know, there are frameworks, there are, you know, rules, and we are part of the international treaty on the covenant on, you know, anti-corruption, and we have the Anti-Corruption Commission in Cerulean, and uh, happens to be a victim. I was arrested um, and detained for 24 hours. My passport was confiscated for 45 days for raising serious accountability issues in Cerulean, um, regarding um, the money that our parliamentarian receive for social development issues. And some of these social development issues links to education. And uh, in another development, um, 11 students we are arrested after we raised issues dealing with um, anti-corruption, uh, about corruption, you know, in the education sector, that the corruption is crippling the education sector yeah. in Leone, where we have a minister of education had served more than 10 years, and the educational system in the country going down the drain. Um, These students were denied the right to education for the whole of semester, a university, Jala University from the south. And these students were out demonstrating for the government to pay their lecturers so that they will go back to the classroom and uh, match with their counterpart in the country. 11 of them were arrested. And, uh, you know, our organisation was at the middle of it to get them released as well, whilst I was mm. unbilled and my passport seized, you know. Um, so, talking about accountability and what can motivate us, and we have countries that has the laws, but they don't want to respect mm-hmm. these laws that they are signatory to or the laws that they have passed.
1: How, how do you what do you t- support? Just, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but how do you, how do you want to put that right? What, what would the international community would you like it to do to make it those laws
6: enforceable? Um, I think um, the UN that comes up with more treaties and just morally binding, I think um, there lies the problem. Mm. Because um, some of these politicians or civil servants working in those countries that we can consider highly corrupt, and they use the law against um, people who challenge you know, um, the corrupt system. Um, they think that, you know, legally they will not be, you know, punished. Mm -hmm. There's no punishment for them, you know. But morally, people will frown at them. Mm -hmm. So I think the international community really needs to think about some of this you know, I'm um, serious issue to bring out. You know, I'm um, serious mm-hmm. legally binding enforced punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for state parties that violate. You know, some of these treaties right. You know, to their citizens. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for that sort of, real, sort of a real world example. Um, and there's a woman here, two two speakers here, and then the man in purple. And if you say who who you're from and everything.
0: um. Hi, um, I'm Julia McGowan from uh, Handicap International. Um, I'm an inclusive education um, technical advisor, so my focus is on inclusive education. So you can probably guess my question. Um, We've touched on it a little bit, but I noticed that throughout the the report I've seen so far, there hasn't been so much of a focus on inclusive education, even Mm -hmm. though... STG4 does have inclusive education in the title. Um, And it's inclusive quality education. I'm always seeing it reduced to quality education, which obviously is important, but it is about inclusive quality education. And I know we touched on a little bit from what you were saying, Mike, in fact, on the disadvantaged um, groups in the UK and and what what they've been doing here. And I think that there's a lot of things that... um, actually answer address some of the questions you raised earlier on how what else to measure how to Mm. measure empathy all of those things actually if you're looking at inclusive education and targets for that and and how to monitor that is actually looking at those things looking at the attitudes looking at issues around how do we address mental health how do we address other disabilities other um, Mm. challenges that children might face Um, we're not just talking about children with disabilities although i think that is the, the biggest group of children who are out of school so i think it's important to mention that when we're looking at out of school children but you know it's, it's about the broad spectrum and how how those children are addressed and and, and how the education sector plan is accountable to that to okay. those groups Great, thanks.
1: and should we take the third question as well we'll take them as a group so we can get, get them together
0: Thanks very much, Sophie Edwards from Devex. Um, I've been writing quite a lot about Liberia, and so I wondered if you guys had some views on the PPP structures. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and also um, the issue in on accountability in Liberia was possibly some suggestions were could somebody like the World Bank come in and provide an accountability mechanism because the government it's possibly not doesn't have the capacity. So when you need something to come in fast. Um, are there any alternatives to sort of having government as the main accountability? Okay.
1: Should we take those, those three together, and they're, they're quite a big topics, so we've got corruption, inclusion, and the experiment in Liberia. <laughs> in, in, in one sentence, five seconds.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Choose any five um, words.
4: Yeah, I did. I did talk about it at the very beginning how <laughs> complex the issue of accountability is, and it really, really is. Um, I. I I'm. I'll I'll mention inclusive education. I think um, it's interesting that we we hadn't mentioned we we did mention this, and I think in the sense that um, a focus on equitable education is is really front (coughs) and center in the report. I think um, where we come at that question from ODI's perspective is um, a a real focus across the SDGs on leave no one behind. And so I think that that emphasis on inclusive education is really embedded into now global frameworks um, focused on uh, on education. But it's also, it's about achieving the, the it, it's not there just because it's of, of from a rights perspective or because it's uh, the right thing to do. It's about achieving the targets and the, and the goals as well because unless you're, you're really focusing on that group that needs to go the last mile, um, you're not going to be achieving the SDGs. And so I think it, it's a fundamental element. Um, Liberian PPP structures, um, I ha- am an observer more than anything on that. And, and so um, I think there are some people in the room that might even be able to, to comment in, in more depth. I find it a very interesting experiment. Um, I I think that there's um, lots of questions about um, again, because of some of the contextual issues we've talked about, how valid that experiment would um, ever be elsewhere and how valid it's going to be in Liberia in the long term because of um, resource availability and capacity. Um, and I think the, the question about supporting accountability structures um, for a government is, um, is a really interesting one as well. And I, I guess the thing that I would say about that is... Um, as kind of shown in this report, it, uh, supporting accountability structures really needs to go beyond the formal mechanisms and the formal structures to be thinking about systems as a whole and goes beyond the role of central government, but um, all the different layers of actors that need to be involved.
7: Okay.
1: you we bring Will in? Is it, you know, the, the Liberian questions mm-hmm. about the idea you know, of using mm-hmm. uh, private providers to, in, in a sort of competition to see who can... Who can uh, deliver better results. Is, is this the, the, the future? Is this, are we looking at something that will be used elsewhere? What's the, what's the view of the monitors on this?
2: <laughs> um, well, we're, we're keeping tabs in Liberia, but probably not, the, not an expert on the, what's going on in Liberia. But I think uh, from our understanding and my understanding, I think what's happening in Liberia is a pretty unique case when we think about the state of the public education system in Liberia uh, and really the, the, the need... Um, the needs they have and the resource constraints they have. So my my take for accountability purposes in Liberia is really a push to make sure that before the experiment expands, that we really do our job and making sure we have adequate evidence to make sure that um, we're not leaving people behind, that we're not pushing students out of schools, and that we have uh, equitable access to high-quality education throughout all. And then I, I also agree with some of Susan's concerns as far as resources. And what does that mean down the road? Right now, I, I know some of the, um, private providers have a lot of external resources coming in to support them, uh, and I'm not sure that's sustainable. So I think uh, understanding... Is, is, it, is it
1: a kind of fork in the road, though, between you, what you might think of as being a development approach and something which is saying, you tried that, got nowhere, here's a whole lot of money, we're going to just do it as a private sector approach. Is, is it a is it, is it a one or other, or are these things which are complementary?
2: I mean, I, I think in, in the long run, we're talking about student learning and, and students' access to high-quality education, right? So. I think for us that would mean that we want to make sure that all students have access to high quality education and that schools, regardless of whether they're public or private, are really meeting regulations um, that are focusing on the rights of the child. In there. And so, um, you know, I, from I think the report's perspective, we see the long-term real sustainable solution is public education. But in some situations, this might be a short-term uh, way to help strengthen the capacity of the government. Uh, so where eventually they're the one providing high quality education um, but I, I think basically going back to some of the concerns on on data and how do you measure it and stuff I I think there needs to be uh, a more holistic approach to like what data are we gathering what evidence do we have in Liberia we need to wait for that to come forth before we really decide to put more money uh, into something that we're not entirely sure how it works
1: mm. um, okay watch the space there yeah. yeah there some more questions whether yeah.
8: sure. John
5: Okay. yes, On, on the pick up on the sort of inclusivity side yes, and, and, e- and equity, yeah. and I guess it particularly made me think of perhaps an area which I think in in some ways you could regard as quite a success story for the UK, and it links in in some ways to use of quite sensitive data, and that's that essentially the the performance of students for whom English is a language, are particularly immigrant students, over the last sort of twenty years in the UK. I mean, they've improved significantly faster than white pupils. Uh, I know part of that is, you can link back, there was a question earlier on about civil society and parental attitudes and expectations, you can link a lot to that, but it's a lot of work that schools have done. But I actually, actually think, how much of that would have happened if we hadn't been collecting nationally data about students' ethnicity and using that to help identify and target support? how much of that would have happened had we not been doing that? Because mm. the references in your report, Will, to the sensitivity of collecting data like that, and that's well understood. Uh, you know, if you look at UK data, um, a lot of children who maybe parents put them down as being Roma in primary school are suddenly no longer Roma in secondary school, and that's because they're worried about being bullied. Mm. <laughs> so they switch what they describe themselves as. So there are immense sensitivities to that, but on the other hand, maybe that data used properly and to target can actually have quite an impact. Mm. Okay. No, let's get some more questions in because we're running out of time. So there's a man
1: at the back and we've got a whole raft of things. So let's try and keep a little bit just conscious of time running out. And where uh, you go, hi, uh, Sebastian from Save the Children. I guess my question is about sequencing or prioritisation. So we talked about a lot of different accountability channels and mechanisms. Are there ones which should be prioritized because they can have greater effect or should be done first because if you do others first, you mm. get perverse incentives? What I do you think? think. What, should, what should be the priority? No idea. <laughs> 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 the, um, admire <with> your honesty. <laughs> and it takes to a whole, there's a man here waiting, be very patient, and then, and then at the back...
9: Uh, th- <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, my name is Steve Packer, ex-DFID and GMR, but a very long time ago. Um, I think many congratulations to the team. We've talked about accountability, but uh, we shouldn't forget that they're also trying to monitor this myriad of indicators. Um, um, so it's a, a, a twofold challenge with relatively limited resources. Um, a couple of comments. One is, I think you must have wrestled with trying to reach those recommendations at the end of the document. Um, I think it's narrowed down too much, uh, and that relates to Susan's point about complexity and context. When I look at the triad of recommendations right at the end, I see statements that I've seen for the last 15 years, basically, with minor linguistic changes. They find themselves in an accountability framework. They've previously found themselves in policy frameworks. They've previously found themselves in resource frameworks. So there's a little bit of me that's rather depressed by a list of statements that are coming back at us and what does that tell us about the progress uh, that's being made. Second, quickly, if you analyzed Vietnam and South Korea and some of the high performers in East Asia, Uh, Would their accountability systems match the injunctions in the report? Mm
6: -hmm.
9: And finally, uh, quickly, a a different question. The GEMR is a part of international accountability systems. It gets its mandate from the 230 development framework. Mm -hmm. But I'm very unclear as to where it sits within SDG reporting mechanisms overall. Mm -hmm. Are you the point of first resort? or are you part of a wider set of mechanisms?
1: Okay, thank you for all this. We'll, 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 we'll leave the technical points to, to later, perhaps. And there's a woman just there in front of you there, and a man at the back, and then, so you three there, so, yeah.
7: My name is Ihua. I'm doing a PhD on teacher accountability at Cambridge, and my question's also about the triad of recommendations, but from a different angle. So the recommendations here on information, resources, and capacity, but I noticed that in the main body of the report mentions a fourth element, motivation. And I just was curious about why there weren't any recommendations about motivation. And I understand that it's challenging both because a lot of motivation is rightly context-specific, and also because when Mm -hmm. you say accountability and motivation, the instant association is performance-based pay and punitive sanctions. But is there not a danger on It just dropping out of consciousness Mm -hmm. if it's not put on the agenda as (coughs) prominently as the other elements.
1: So, do you think it's too negative? There should be positive, rather than negative. Or, or just that
7: I'm just wondering about the decision to not include motivation on the list here when it was included as a component of the effective accountability system. Okay.
1: And there's a man just behind there, and then who's just at the back.
8: Hello, hi. Uh, my name is Luke Stanard. I'm working with Save the Children at the moment. Um, we're working on a report in EdTech in Education and Emergencies. So I just wanted to talk up for that sort of slightly um, muddied area between development and, and what we're looking at here. Uh, oh, the other way around, so it was. Um, but we have a problem that we have a huge prolifer- proliferation of private sector engagers uh, engaging in the education emergency sector. Uh, we talk to them about accountability. We're trying to encourage greater accountability in short uh, funding cycles. Tends to scare people off. So how do... Um, NGOs are being... They're arguing that we're standing in the way of them engaging because we're asking them to produce measures of accountability and how they're mm-hmm. improving learning outcomes. Uh, so what would your recommendations be for how we how negotiate?
1: No, it's a big, big question, isn't it? And, and finally, there's a woman there who's been waiting.
0: Um, Thanks. Um, I'm Elaine Untelter from uh, UCL Institute of Education. Um, It's a kind of development of Sebastian's question about prioritisation. The diagram is very flat, so um, the, the, you know, the governments, schools, pupils, (coughs) which is probably intentional around um, wanting to privilege context. But the question I'm asking is how, or wondering about, is how you'd manage trade-offs, and what are, the, are there particular norms of accountability that you think would need to drive um, how you would uh, deal with the prioritisation or sequencing? Is is where where is equity a norm? Um, mm. Question mark.
1: Okay. Well, I tell you what, we're, we're, we're right out of time, and. Um, what i think we should do maybe taking your theme about where do you where do you start what's the priority and also our colleagues and said children over there what 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 are the priorities Should we take that as a final question to our panel and then we'll take some of the other ones as comments because they're raising huge topics about about how you spread the net of accountability over so many different things should we just take that where would you what what would you make your priority from today's report where would you what would you think if you had to tell people there's one thing from this that they should think about and focus on what would it be
4: um, I think accountability needs to be um, looking at holistic systems um, and I think the question of sequencing is, is maybe a, a misdirection in the sense that, um, that you really have to look at a context as a whole. And at the different layers of actors, and I think um, a mistake, and possibly why recommendations look similar as they might have 15 years ago, is because there hasn't been that kind of holistic analysis of what needs to happen in terms of accountability and engagement, not just in a formal structure of regulations, but also the the underlying um, dynamics uh, and the motivations um, that are there. So I think my my takeaway would be a holistic system approach to accountability. Okay. Mike, what would you say? What's your...? Uh,
5: Two thoughts. One, I'd just go back to that thing I opened up with about remembering the headline about humility within the context of accountability. Mm. Uh, And I guess if I could... simplest ways end with a plug for something that my colleagues at Datalab were involved in, and, and I can speak dispassionately about this because it was Becky Allen and Dave Thompson that have worked with Head Teachers Roundtable on this, I haven't been involved but Head Teachers Roundtable have published I think some very interesting documents talking about where UK should go next in terms of school accountability and it says lots of really interesting what, things. It's about encouraging, finding ways for accountability to encourage cooperation rather than competition between schools.
1: Well, final word to you as the
2: author. <laughs> uh, well, first, I, I want to uh, encourage, so the, the video you saw and the uh, diagram with all the different actors, I think it's interesting to see the, the range of actors involved. When we talk about actually how accountability works, uh, if when you get to the full report, look up page. Uh, 14 and figure 1.2 because that really talks about the, the four pieces here on resources, capacity, information, and motivation and how that really works in with the interdependence of actors. So I think uh, wh- where do you start? I think actually you start with trust. Like there's there are countries that do a good job of building trust and there are multiple la- layers of trust. You need to have trust in the person, you need to have trust in the profession. We think about teachers. We need to be building trust in the teaching profession and then you need to have trust in the process. And part of that trust starts with including all the important stakeholders in the development of some of these policies. So when they conclude it, they are more likely to actually believe that it's a just and effective process. So I think Mm. trust is incredibly important. Okay, trust.
1: We'll end on the word trust then. Um,
2: Thank you very much. And to our virtual audience. Uh, big
1: apologies to lots and lots of questions we haven't had time to to, to address but they're all in, in here and we've read them um and uh thank you to, to for all of you for having so many thoughts and apologies for for people who didn't get a chance to speak because i think they probably a lot we could have gone on a bit longer but um uh can we give a round of applause to our panel panelists um, and also the uh the invisible report team who are listed at great length in here who have produced all this work I'm sure if they're watching in Paris uh, thank you very much for all their hard work Um, and thank thank you and thank you very much for coming
0: Thank you for listening For more ODI live event podcasts find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes